Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times of COVID-19, when there's not a protest on, of course, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm your host, Scott Challoner, and I'm joined on today's programme by Adrian Brady. Adrian is the Managing Director at Escape Recruitment, a business headquartered in Livingston, Scotland. Adrian, welcome to the programme and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi Scott, nice to be here. It's an absolute pleasure having you um, as well, Adrian. And the purpose of this discussion really is to establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader on its own, first and foremost, what does that word actually mean to you? Well, I I think first and foremost, it's one of those words which everyone has an opinion of. Um, and it's, uh, leadership uh, as, a, as a whole is something which is extensively studied and extensively written and spoken about. Um, there are ideas of, you know, leaders are born. Uh, some people would um, suggest, others would suggest that leaders can be, can be made. And I suppose my own view is that probably the truth lies somewhere in between um, and I think that often leadership can be demonstrated as a consequence or as a reaction to the circumstances that people find themselves in. So, you know, for example, if, if someone is caught in a very challenging situation, such as a, a house fire, for example, their, 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 their standard uh, operating style may well be quite meek and humble and they fill the role of, of follower, diligent follower, but under you know uh, extreme stress, their survival instinct comes out, their desire to save others or save property uh, comes to the fore, and they decide to make spontaneous decisions and to be the person that's regarded as the individual that will will, will, will take them through this particular challenge. So I think. Leaders can can rise uh, given the, the circumstances. I don't know if that makes sense uh, or not. I would certainly say so. Um, I think there's a lot of merit in the idea that leaders um, aren't necessarily made for sure and not necessarily born, but the answer does lie in between that because I think that certain qualities are things that you are born with maybe a certain self-motivation a certain drive maybe a natural ability to captivate a room you might say but developing practical skills and honing those qualities that you do have to become an effective leader is part of making yourself into a good leader and developing and I think we do have to go on a bit of a learning journey don't we to become effective leaders and part and parcel of that is suffering hardship and setbacks perhaps as we are doing now with COVID-19 and embrace that as a learning curve and using that to become more resilient. I think that's that's, that's very interesting, and, I, and uh, you know, I feel uh, that I, I guess what you're honing in on there is that in order to, to develop as a leader and to develop as a person, actually, you have to be able to uh, demonstrate and tap into a certain degree of humility. I think leadership takes confidence, but I think also. Um, there's a, a confidence required in being able to admit that, okay, I, I wasn't quite right there, or in fact, I was wrong there, but we're going to change direction, and this is the direction we're, we're going on, and not to dwell on uh, on on the failures. And the, 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 the point you make about constant development 
I think is absolutely critical and key. You must constantly be looking to develop how you think and how you react and to demonstrate those qualities to, to people around you so that they can also be encouraged not to be trite, but to see failure as an opportunity to, to get better and to improve and to uh, make better quality decisions uh, further down the line. For sure. And um, what you mentioned uh, there about um, that willingness to essentially admit when you've suffered a setback, you made a mistake and you have to sort of change direction. I think that takes a degree of humility, doesn't it? And that's another really important word when it comes to leadership. Um, Humility, but also honesty and transparency are some very important qualities in being able to win over the trust of people and be able to take people with you and that's an incredibly important part of it as well because without a team around you I suppose you're not necessarily really a leader of anything are you? Well uh, correct Um, and I think that that there's there's an increasing confusion um, I I guess between leadership and management Um, and I think actually without, without question you can learn to be a very good technical manager uh, to make sure that you know people are involved mm. and that they have their say and that they are measured and monitored appropriately, these are these are learnable skills which, if you choose to apply them, uh, can make you a good manager. And actually, I often think that good leaders don't necessarily make good managers. And I, I know that I could immediately be shot down for saying that, but good leaders will attract good managers around them those people who um, don't necessarily have the confidence, the courage, or even the creativity to see the horizon that's being painted, but can be sufficiently excited by that horizon that's being painted by the the leader, um, and to support the journey towards that by providing a certain degree of of structure um, and, and rigor. And that's their part if you like, in the the developmental journey of a team or an organisation. And, you know, that that takes me to the, 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 the point that actually organisations, first of all, I think they need people who can lead across the organisation. It's not just one leader. You need, I believe, leaders in teams, leaders in teams and leaders in departments. Um, but you also need managers and organisation and structure in the organization as a whole and in, in departments also. And the, the, the kind of crossover um, there is is something which can create conflict and leaders have to be very conscious that they embrace the skills of other people. And it gets back to that word humility, which, which is that recognizing that you don't necessarily have the full suite of skills, but understanding that the full suite of skills are required to take the business of the organization forward. I think the key thing to take away from uh, that, Adrian, as well as to understand that as leaders, we're not lone wolves, are we? It's very much about uh, the uh, the collective and allowing people to take on their own forms of leadership, be independent and compliment you as their leader. Because as a leader, you may not necessarily be blessed with effective people management skills, but you do have other people who you can learn from who can also sort of do that task for you. And it's incredibly important to uh, to remember that sort of delegating certain things Absolutely. as well. Massive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think actually, in, in <laughs> broadly speaking, in kind of Western uh, societies and Western commercial societies, which are the only, uh, I guess, structures I've got experience of, is that, you know, we've had a long transition period, really, from 
uh, that time, at that point in time, in the, maybe the 50s or 60s, let's say, and 70s as well, of course, where, um, you know, leadership was management. That's what it was. People were told, uh, subordinates listened and enacted the instructions. And, you know, through ongoing development, there's been a recognition that actually that's not how to get the best out of people. Um, and clearly the whole uh, culture of, of work and the whole uh, psychology of engagement between employers and employees and colleagues has changed over the last three or four decades. And the part of, of, of leadership, which I think you might say is something that people are, if not born with, then it's cultivated within them and nurtured within them from quite an early age, is a sort of quality of, of confidence. Not nonsense, not, uh, you know, airheaded um, kind of dreaming, but a quality of confidence which can inspire people around them with the skills to deliver the vision. Um, and so, again, get back to that point or my belief, and I think it's something that we share, which is that it, it takes a team of people with different qualities to uh, make something successful. And then you have to ask, actually, what is success? And without being too esoteric about it, you know, um, yes, but organisations need to make a profit. I think that's, well, commercial organisations need to make a profit. Let's put it, let's put it that way. But I think all organisations um, fundamentally need to have a desire to do the best that they can do and be the best that they can be in order for their them to be places that people enjoy working and if they enjoy working um, the uh, your colleagues will give of their give of their best and that takes a combination of inspirational leadership care but also structure and discipline and compliance but those things delivered not in a, a sort of mid 19th century framework but in a 21st century framework where people's uh, views are legitimately aired and given time and responded to, whether that response says, well, do you know what, that's not right for us just now, or actually that's not going to fly, or in fact, you know what, that's excellent, that's brilliant, we're going to embrace that, and we think that that can add value to our organisation. I think um, that's um, exactly right, um, uh, Adrian. And I think it's the leaders who will have taken uh, that approach on that will really be benefiting at the moment um, in this current uh, situation because it will be their teams that are willing to really go that extra mile and push the boundaries to keep things ticking over. Um, In the case of escape recruitments, have you been inspired, would you say, by the reaction that your sort of employees have uh, mustered um, in response to this pandemic? I think, um, did you say, have I been inspired yeah, so have you been inspired and um, really buoyed by their response um, in a way? Has it, has it been a cause for encouragement, I would say? Okay. Uh, I would have to, to, to say that overall, yes, I have been. I think that um, I've been inspired by the level of understanding that people have demonstrated. Um, many of my colleagues with whom I, I still keep in contact, whether they are furloughed or, or, or not, um, are showing you know considerable resistance, if you like, to the, the challenges of, of, of being furloughed. And those colleagues, uh, which is, makes up about sort of thirty five percent of the business, who are still are still working, have shown real positive resilience uh, to the change in the commercial world, which is that um, 
there are a lot of people chasing around for for business, and there are colleagues who are who are uh, have not furloughed are working very long hours, uh, working at great speed, um, and with you know high levels of of quality and commitment. So in in general terms, yes, I have been in, inspired by my colleagues, but in two separate ways. I've got those people who are working very very hard, and I've got those colleagues who actually are, are struggling with furlough, but they are doing their best to cope like adults with mm. what is an extraordinary situation. And it's um, not not to go on at too great a length, but it, it truly is an extraordinary situation. This for, for for people, some colleagues are isolated on their own, uh, some colleagues. Uh, have you know larger families to cope with, and this these are not a set of circumstances that they would ever have dreamt of finding themselves in, and so they they very quickly had to create a, a, a new landscape in their mind for for coping. And you know, interesting what I'm hearing and what I'm I'm I'm, I'm seeing is that it's just as difficult being on furlough as it is being in work, and and actually. Um, a, a very kind of positive thing has, has occurred, which, which is that people are really beginning to value their job and the workplace that they are in, and uh, you know, recognizing that it's an important facet of life uh, to have that structure and have something to aim for. So that's actually been been very uh, inspiring. I think we've got a, a positive culture in our business, and, and we don't have. A high attrition rate of, of, of colleagues, um, and so it's been inspiring to to see that people are actually missing the society of their colleagues and the interaction with with their customer base. And thinking about the future now, uh, Major, and before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, what do you envision the next twelve months holding for yourself and for Escape Recruitment? And what do you hope to achieve as we hopefully move through the COVID nineteen pandemic and emerge from it, and really begin to look to the long term future? Well, um, I think if the, if I say that the two challenges, the two significant challenges for for all commercial entities, and, and I guess um, you know government bodies as well, whether that's local authorities and so on, is is the uh, the, uh, the shortage of cash, um, which is a very real, it's going to be a very real issue, and that being caused by uncertainty. I, I don't, for me, it's it's not any more difficult than that. You, you, we could we could talk, of course, uh, about Brexit and no deal. But as a medium-sized business in Scotland, I've got very, very little influence over that. All I can do is anticipate uh, the the, uh, the ripple effect from that. Um, so I think that uh, moving on, uh, there will be uh, less opportunity. And so people need to hone their skills and go back to uh, the basics of, of, of a job and make sure that they're adding value all the way through. I think that, um, and I'm not sure whether you want to touch on this or not, but I think payment mechanisms will need to change. I think quite rightly the government are making it more difficult for organisations to be forced into uh, an administration position or a position of, of being liquidated. Um, and I think that's quite right. They're encouraging people to trade out of um, uh, insolvency uh, and so on. But that adds additional challenges, which is that if, as an organisation, we don't get paid, then there isn't a great deal of recourse that we can that we can turn to. So, you know, the the the, the uncertainty 
is there for not just medium-sized recruitment businesses, but for, for all organizations. And in terms of navigating through that, I think that organizations will trim back. I think that uh, every resource has to cover its cost. Every human resource has to be seen to, to cover its cost. So there will be different types of measurements, different types of um, service offerings. I think different relationships will develop between suppliers and end users. Um, and beyond that, I think that people will aim to try and get back to the, the type of commercial environment that we had before, but there will be significant uh, developments there too, and not all bad. I think people have become familiar with working from home and utilizing that technology. I think that most people would see the benefit in reducing the carbon footprint in doing that, but also having a different type of work-life balance. So I think that our whole commercial uh, economy will change in shape and change in nature. And what I would like to actually think is that there's a, a sort of leadership in reverse, if you like. We would normally, and, and I guess it's important to stay away from, from your party politics, but you would normally look to their elected leaders for guidance and, and, and support in matters like this. But, you know, when uh, you, you see MPs having to queue for a kilometre to, to, to make a vote, uh, when clearly it could be done using technology, I think there will be a groundswell uh, of uh, or a groundswell movement to actually um, move our, our whole way of thinking, um, our whole way of thinking towards uh, a different way of a different way of working. Certainly going to be interesting to see just what this new normal is going to look like, um, Adrian, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. And um, I think um, given uh, how informative it's been having you on the programme with us today, it would be great in the next year to actually catch up and just see at that stage how exactly things have altered in that time and also maybe um, discuss how escape recruitment is uh, getting on as a business um, as well. I think from a listener's perspective, that would be hugely uh, beneficial. Yeah, I'd be delighted to do that. Likewise, um, Adrian. I was going to say one final point is I'm actually quite enthusiastic about the future. I think there is mm. one. There is one for us and there is one for other organisations, but adaptation is going to be key. That's exactly it. And I think um, the one of the positives that's come out of this uh, tragic time is the fact that it has forced the hand of uh, businesses to really innovate and um, be flexible and adaptable, perhaps they weren't before. And that's something to really take away from this period as well for certain. Absolutely. Um, Adrian, I've got to say it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme uh, with us uh, today. It's a shame we're just about out of time. Otherwise, I'm sure we could discuss it um, all um, afternoon for sure. Um, but thank you ever so much um, for joining us. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods yet with this. Thank you, Scott. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise, Adrian. That was Adrian Brady speaking, the Managing Director at Escape Recruitment. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet, rising to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in the August of that year. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. And that's coming up next. 
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual unless we do that then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn and then they become unsustainable now of course um one of the other major developments we've had recently uh, the changes in the uh, the labor party so if we could just uh, speak on the labor party for uh, a while Um, This might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a credible opposition nor an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.